0: One. Hello everyone and welcome to the 34th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways. Today we are joined by an old friend of mine, Michael Walsh. We are gonna be taking questions in the second half of the interview. Uh, So please, you're welcome to go ahead and submit them now in the Zoom chat box, or also uh, just type them into the comment section on YouTube. Um, Michael Walsh's career has spanned journalism, screenwriting, and music review. He was a classical music critic for Time Magazine, and a columnist for National Review. He is uh, the New York Times bestselling author of 16 books, six novels, and 10 nonfiction books, including The Devil's Pleasure Palace, The Cult of Critical Theory, and The Subversion of the West. He most recently published Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. Uh, which I just listened to on audio. So, uh, Michael, welcome again. Congratulations on your book.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be with you and with the Atlas Society.
0: So um, by a little bit of context, Michael and I met, oh gosh, about 15 years ago. We were introduced by a mutual friend, uh, the screenwriter Dale Lawner, who I think we actually have uh, booked for an interview coming up on March 10th. Uh, The context I thought was kind of relevant um, to the challenges of our time because uh, Michael and I met at a monthly private event that Dale had organized in Hollywood. And it was notable not for its location, which kept on changing, uh, but for the social mixing of uh, liberals, conservatives, libertarians, um, clearly wildly different perspectives uh, that were represented, represented, including I remember uh, Andrew Breitbart was a, was a regular and um, wildly uh, different times. It, it seems to me, Michael, and I, I wonder if you'd agree that uh, that kind of socializing across partisan lines was a good thing. And something, you know, social media seems to be undermining your reflections?
1: Yes, well, I remember that very well. I, I was invited by uh, a friend of mine who said, uh, you want to go to this party tonight? It's a really interesting group of people. Uh, and then uh, all, all you have to do is be interesting. So I said, oh, okay, well, I'll do my best for that. But yes, it was, it was first held at a, at a restaurant uh, up, up in the Hollywood Hills called Yamashiro, which was built by a zillionaire in the 30s in the this, in this style of the Japanese pagoda house and it was great fun and then it moved around and moved to Dale's house and it moved elsewhere after that and in fact that's where I met Andrew Breitbart and uh, we were talking that first night and after about five minutes Andrew said to me you know Michael you should be the editor of big journalism on my new website that I'm developing and that's how Breitbart Media got started and I, half of it actually started right in Yamashiro itself. So, boy, those things are gone, are they not, Jennifer? It's too bad about that, because I think we need to talk to each other, especially in this fraught, these fraught times.
0: I I agree. And I think um, that uh, we need to talk across uh, conservative, libertarian um, and uh, and, and liberal uh, lines or progressive lines, um, while I think also tending to our own community and uh, providing strength and a sense of connection. But of course, uh, these past few months have provided anything, but Um, I started this webinar series back in in March when we were, you know, forced to take a break from uh, the nonstop travel of uh, student conferences and speeches. And um, I learned so much uh, from the personal lockdown stories of Our guests. And um, I understand that you just returned to the United States from Ireland, where you've spent most of the past 2020 in lockdown. Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience there. And did it impact your perspective on what's been happening in the United States?
1: Yeah, Ireland is an odd place. Uh, There's something called Irish democracy, which people may have heard of, which is uh, the government makes laws and then everybody ignores them. So that's the nice part about Ireland is I spent uh, most of 2020 uh, in the editing process for the new book, Last Stands. I had finished it literally the last day of 2019, sent the manuscript in, got on a plane, flew to London for a meeting. Uh, halfway through the month, about the 15th, I went back to Ireland and never <laughs> never lasted it suddenly the COVID thing struck and uh, I had a new granddaughter to play with. So I just ended up staying there and did the editorial process on the book in in Ireland. So lockdown was quite easy for me. And because uh, my house is in a very remote part of uh, the Irish uh, country out on the west coast of Ireland, known to tourists in the summer, but very, very isolated in the winter. uh, It was pretty easy to go through lockdown and uh, but then writers are always in lockdown. So what, what was the difference really?
0: So um, your, your book, Last Stands, has really struck a nerve. Um, you looked at over a dozen battles um, in which men risked and uh, more often lost their lives against overwhelming odds, thermopylae. Uh, I particularly enjoyed your account of Masada, uh, the Warsaw Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, um, which Leon Uris, of course, uh, uh, memorialized in in his book. Um, uh, You also cover, of course, and no book on last stands would be complete without it, uh, the Alamo. Now, the the Alamo, of course, most recently has been um, in the news uh, including some commentary by the chairman of the Texas Historical Association uh, downgrading the military significance of the battle, saying it's a myth perpetuated to commemorate whiteness. Uh, thoughts on that that controversy?
1: Yeah, uh, the Alamo uh, is an interesting one. It's politically correct incorrect now to admire the Alamo. Uh, what used to be kind of the centerpiece of Texas, te- Texasism. You know what what it means to be a Texan was so tied up with the Alamo, uh, and then it became this kind of modern metaphor for and Anglos versus Hispanics. And it's all gotten completely out of hand. What I did is I went back to all the original sources on the owl battle. And I think the most interesting uh, background bit that readers need to know about it was the Mexicans had invited the Americans into that part of Texas. The government could not control all of that area of New Spain, much of which is now part of the United States. They didn't have the manpower they couldn't fight off the Apaches and the Cheyenne. Uh, they, the Spanish, never really settled. They did. They didn't bring in colonists the way the British did to the United States. So they needed people to help secure that area for the Texas government, and that's where the idea of the Texians came from. They were, there were many off. Uh, some of the guys at the Alamo were actually Mexican citizens. They were Anglo's, but Mexican citizens. <laughs> Excuse me. They were brought into Uh, Hold the territory. Pretty soon they got so numerous that the Mexicans said, Oh my goodness, we have all of these Anglo settlers and we're losing control of our own pieces of our own country and wanted to throw them out. So it's really kind of a parable about immigration, both legal and illegal. And once the Texians decided to to fight for independence, other Anglos came in and uh, Santa Ana, the Mexican general, was also the Mexican president. So you had a very interesting fight where the Mexican side was led by the president of the country versus these uh, American frontiersmen and westward pushing people. They all died at the Alamo, but very shortly thereafter, there was the famous Battle of San Jacinto in which the Mexican forces were just completely annihilated and routed. And that's how Texas became part of the United States. It's the ongoing struggle between the, the culture of Spain and the culture of England. It's really the Spanish Armada being fought on land all over again. You know, they say history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes and and here we are, it's like a poem now.
0: So, um, Last Dance is a military history and I know that we have uh, several fans of military history that have joined us uh, on the webinar. So I wanna encourage all of you that are with us on Zoom or on YouTube again, to go ahead and type in your questions for Michael. Um, the book, if I understand, was inspired by uh, your father's service as a Korean War veteran, uh, but you also set out to gain a better understanding of uh, the current uh, contempt and even hostility to masculinity. Tell us a little bit about the, the story that you told me about your, your rabbi and, and, and what, was, what was it that led you to, to uh, take, take on this book?
1: Well, the book was uh, bubbling around in my head. I had just written two books, The Devil's Pleasure Palace and The Fiery Angel, which are about the essential nature of Western civilization. And when you start to dive into that, and I use the arts as the tool of analysis, when you start to dive into it, you realize you're really talking now about the essential nature of people, male male and female. So the first book uh, in this new pairing uh, was about men. And, what's more masculine than fighting, actual physical combat. So I, I had this book in mind, and I was on a cruise uh, to Hawaii for Hillsdale College, and my friend and colleague, Victor Davis Sanson, was on that cruise too, and I'd already worked out the proposal, and I'd showed it to Victor, and he encouraged me to go ahead with it. Uh, and then while I was writing the book and conceptualizing it, I realized I had a survivor of a last stand in my own family in the form of my now 94-year-old father, uh, who had been a 24-year-old first lieutenant in Korea when he landed at Inchon and fought up all the way up to the reservoir. Uh, so I think combining those two elements just, uh, it, it turned the book into a, a, a nice ode to heroism and masculinity and service, uh, but it also allowed me to honor my own dad down in the uh, sunset of his years, so to speak, and and I think that it was a very uh, emotional and satisfying project to work on, although quite, quite hard in mean, each one of those chapters. I had to go back to the original Greek Roman and sources in other languages to make sure we had it right. I, I'm especially proud of one chapter, Jennifer, about the sack of Rome in 1527, which nobody remembers at all, but was one of the formative uh, uh, incidents in uh, the Renaissance. It ended the Italian Renaissance effectively it was the last stand of the Swiss Guard who defended the Pope and got him out of the Vatican and into the Castel San Angelo right across the Tiber. But I think everyone will find a lot of fun things to uh, enjoy, including a 10,000-word uh, rehabilitation of George Armstrong Custer and an explanation of what happened at the Little Bighorn. I, I think that, will, that has already engendered a lot of discussion. So, you know, there's something to offend everybody in every book I write, and I'm proud to say this continues that tradition.
0: I have, I have no doubt that right? we would not expect anything less um, from you. And I think uh, part of toleration is, is being willing to tolerate offense and things that we find offensive. Um, so you are planning a twin book for Last Stands, focusing more on uh, femininity. I, I guess the working title is Trojan Women. Yeah. Another, another author who had very emphatic... Uh, and somewhat controversial views on masculinity and femininity of course is Ayn Rand and um, her, her views on, on that are not central to, uh, to the philosophy of, of objectivism, um, but, but she, she did t- write about uh, the essence of femininity as quote unquote hero worship, the desire to look up to a man and, uh, and that an ideal woman uh, was a, quote, man worshiper, um, and an ideal man uh, is the highest symbol of mankind. What is your perspective um, exploring
1: the, the nature of femininity? Well, I would start by saying that my perspective in everything I write is to base it on historical principles. That doesn't mean write a historical novel or write, even write a book about history. It's just that we have a very clear tradition for 2,500 years from the Greeks of the Homeric period to the present about uh, how men and women should interact. What is the essential nature of men and women? My argument with the feminists right now is that they are trying to overturn that history and posit a different reality, which so far only exists in their heads. Uh, Has the relationship between men and women changed? It's evolved. But is it fundamentally different? I don't think so. And an example of this, uh, as I'm doing the research right now for this book, which, as you mentioned, I'm calling the Trojan Women, uh, in part because that's the name of a wonderful play by uh, Euripides about the four principal women after the fall of Troy and trying to put their lives together while their fate is being sealed by men, such as Agamemnon, obviously. Cassandra is one of the characters in that. Uh, there's a statue of uh, the famous incident known as the Rape of the Sabines, which is a mistranslation. It's actually the abduction of the Sabines uh, by Gian Bologna in, a, uh, in, in Italy. And it shows three figures. One is an, all the nude, one of them is an older man who's on the ground, one of them is a younger, more virile, strong man who's kneeling on him and elevating in his arms a naked woman so that she becomes the the peak of this sort of giant triangle. And I think that's a wonderful image as far as Western man and and women are concerned in terms of flipping the narrative in a way that, while the woman is being abducted, she's also being held in the highest esteem and an object of desire and, and indeed necessity because the Romans abducted the Sabine women because they needed women to produce children because they didn't have any women in Rome in the early days. So it kind of symbolizes everything I, I think I'm going to be delving into in this new book. And I don't think it's, it'll make some feminists mad. But again, as I say, if I'm doing my job right, you got to make somebody mad. But I think as a symbol of the relationship, the one, the young male superseding the older male to get up the desirable woman, uh, it's a good place to start. So I'm just tucking into this project now. Well, talk to me in two years. We'll see how it turned out
0: yeah well I'm very very interested in it. I've written uh, myself on um, sort of ideas of, of objectivism and how they uh, connect with relationships and and uh, women um, should be should want to to be put on a pedestal. you know I, I know obviously there's downsides to that, but I I've written that uh, we should want to be put up on high where we don't get, uh, stepped on or ignored. So, um, so I think that's interesting. Another thing that was interesting to me in your book was uh, the questions that you raised about heroism, including heroism in the service of a bad cause. Ayn Rand uh, explores that as well with some of her most compelling heroes being a doomed Soviet Commissars. Um, how should we think of this, not just historically, but today with the demonization of uh, those with different political views?
1: Yeah. That's, boy, uh, she raises so many interesting issues. Just to touch on the feminine thing for a second, obviously, uh, Dominique and Dagny are certainly uh, not weak women. Uh, as, as someone said in, in uh, Atlas strike the princess sleeps with all three princes. Uh, and both of those women are objects of desire on the part of the men who are competing for them. Um, As far as heroism is concerned, it's been denatured, uh, I think in part by the feminists and in part by just a general feeling that men shouldn't be, as you said earlier, toxic. And uh, I think of Last Stands as celebration of toxic masculinity. Uh, When this issue was raised with one of my friends, as I mentioned to you before, Uh, he said, go for it, just uh, go right at them. The only way you can ever win a battle is to go right at them and and put them on the back foot. So this argument about the nature of men and women, I think is very uh, telling, it's extremely important. Uh, I think one of the reasons young women are so unhappy is that the young men in their lives are so unheroic, so unmasculine, so just generally weak. And women may say they want the kinder Gentler guy, but in the end, they all run off with the Hell's Angels guy when he shows up on the motorcycle, don't they? I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I wouldn't know, of course, but uh, I think that women are attracted to those big, strong guys. And certainly the history of the literature, and again, I'm, as I'm reading the Greeks again for the new book, uh, makes that very, very clear. I don't think that denigrates women. Uh, and I think the relationship between the sexes is highly complex uh, and it's fun. And that's why the French say, Vive le difference. We're not the same. Uh, we have to figure out how to live together. Uh, we enjoy each other's company, both uh, on a physical level, on an intellectual level, on a spiritual level, uh, and yet we are antithetical in many ways. Uh, it's a, it's a big subject. As I said, I talk to you two years after I get this thing going.
0: All right. Well, then we'll return to last stands, which which is written, and uh, we very much appreciate that you were able to take this time out of your schedule because I know that you've been on kind of round-the-clock uh, interviews about the book. Um, in, in the book, you make a distinction which I think is very interesting uh, to those interested in Ayn Rand's philosophy of uh, objectivism and rational self-interest. You make a distinction between self-sacrifice and altruism. Um, how, do, how do you see that difference?
1: Well, I know that altruism is kind of a dirty word among uh, Randians and uh, for reasons that she explains very persuasively. Uh, yeah, I have. A, I also have an issue with altruism, unless it's totally pure. And I don't think most anything people do is totally pure. But in battle, uh, any soldier will tell you, starting with my, my father talking about the night they were ambushed by the, about 100,000 Chinese, and there were only 2,500 Marines to fight them. Uh, your, your training kicks in and your instinctive loyalty goes to the band next to you. Uh, people go to war for big reasons of state, you know, uh, for God, for country, for duty, for honor, uh, for treaties so World War I started with uh, the assassination of the Archduke, but what tumbled all those dominoes were the treaties that held all these countries together. So pretty soon over a relatively minor assassination, Uh, the whole world was in in flames. So for men, heroism is something that happens. You don't seek it. Uh, Nobody in battle wants a guy who wants to run out there and get killed. That's the guy you don't want in your unit. But you do want the man next to you to be willing to sacrifice himself, not just for you, but for everybody else in the unit. And so the great stories of heroism, the guys who win the Congressional Medal of Honor, and you read what they did uh, and for the ones that live, so some of them get awarded it posthumously, they say, I just did what anybody else would do. Uh, no hero ever likes to say he's a hero. And, and I think that's a misreading on the part of anti-toxic masculinity, anti-male feminists that men want the glory. They don't go to seek the glory. They, it, it is thrust upon them and uh, often in very, you know, generally in very surprising and unexpected ways.
0: So uh, Jimbo, the Coastie, has a question um, and we're going to start weaving those in. So I encourage all of you that are joining us to please ask your questions for Michael um, and type them into the Zoom chat box or into, uh, into YouTube. He asks, do you think the um, Biden administration will start plundering the uh, military budget uh, this or, or next year?
1: Wow. I mean, the Biden administration is only about, what, five, six hours old right now. Uh, I don't know. Clearly, the Democrats have a different idea about militarism, but it's changed. Uh, One of the things that President Trump accomplished by not doing was not getting us involved in any more of these foreign, uh, useless wars. I think the uh, Republicans and Democrats have both become fans of military adventuring. Uh, starting with the Bush administration, who mishandled 9 11 so spectacularly. Uh, in, the the entire history of the presidency from the death of Reagan or from the retirement of Reagan to the present is, is rather sad. Uh, but there's no reason that the United States forces should be in Afghanistan. No, zero. That war, war should have been over two weeks after it started. Uh, we don't fight, excuse me, <coughs> we don't fight wars to finish anymore, we fight to continue them. So what President Trump did was to say, enough of this. And he took tremendous opposition from both parties. I think the Biden administration is likely to go back more towards adventurism than not, frankly. I think uh, the Pentagon will be happy with that. It's War is how, especially limited wars like we fight, is how you train the officer, younger officers, your your captains and your majors. Uh, You train them in tactics. You train them in battle you train them to be leaders, uh, this is very good for the military. It's less good for the country, and I think it's, uh, it's too bad that the president didn't get a second term. Uh, I think he would have withdrawn all those troops. I, for example, I lived in Germany for 10 years as a civilian, and I don't see any reason to keep American troops in Germany at all, but the Germans were the ones that always tried to block that because they're a very valuable separate pawns against any further Russian Eventually, similarly, in South Korea, uh, our troops are there, there's 30,000 guys there uh, as tripwires in case the North Koreans attack again. So they're cannon fodder. Why? It's a, it's a question we, we don't somehow want to ask ourselves.
0: So uh, tell us, Michael, a little bit about your time in um, behind the Iron Curtain. I, I wasn't aware of that history, but I know that you and I were... We were talking about Ayn Rand uh, and your perspective on communism. Um, what, share with us a little bit about those experiences.
1: Yeah, well, I speak German. I learned it in college and uh, took to it right away. I like German culture very much. Uh, so in 1989, uh, well, I actually, started a little earlier. I, I went to in 1985 when I was working at Time magazine and, uh, to write a piece about the 300th birthday of J.S. Bach. George Frederick Handel, uh, who were both born in what then was East Germany. So I crossed through Checkpoint Charlie for the first of many, many times and went and picked up a German uh, babysitter, (laughs) effectively. Uh, I didn't need to translate it, but they decided that one would be supplied. And we went all over East Germany together. We're very close friends to this day, uh, I'm pleased to say. And I, I... Being a a Germanophile, I I found it extremely stimulating. The following year, I went to Moscow and Leningrad with the great pianist, Vladimir Horowitz, who is probably the greatest pianist of the 20th century. And I wrote a cover story for Time magazine about that. And then in 1989, I moved my family, pregnant wife and my four-year-old daughter, to Germany uh, for what turned out to be nearly a decade. So my daughters were, one was born there, one was raised there. Uh, we lived in Munich, but I was in Berlin a lot, and I was there in Berlin when the wall came down. So I have pieces of it in this very study that you see me sitting in now. Uh, I continued to go in and out of East Germany and and Russia, uh, and I finally left Russia the, about two months or no, about two weeks before the coup against Gorbachev in the summer of '91, and then the Soviet Union collapsed shortly after that. So I got a front row seat for the. Biggest event of of uh, my generation's lifetime.
0: So, as the father of two daughters, two two uh, grown grown women now, um, we have an interesting question from one of our supporters, Douglas Bassberg, who I encourage to join, and I'm glad to see that he has. Uh, he asks, "Can women can women be heroes?" Um, he thinks so, uh, and nothing about heroism
1: um, precludes being a woman. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. I don't think. I mean, that, my man was a hero. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. So I mean, I
0: heroines.
1: Heroines. Uh, yeah, I like to keep the language gendered. I mean, right. Uh, you know, best actor as a woman. Now, how about best act as well? I know you can't. Okay, so, uh, yes, women can be heroes. Uh, it depends on how you define heroism. Obviously, we've had, and I'm going to point out in this book, uh, women can be Tremendously influential, I'll give you an example uh, that I think our listeners might, uh, viewers might like to know about. There's a woman who I'm currently madly in love with. Oh man, is she the best, most gorgeous, brilliant woman ever. Unfortunately for me, she's been dead for a thousand years, but that's not stopping our affair, I'm telling you this right now. Her name is Anna Komnena, and Anna Komnena was the daughter of uh, the Byzantine Emperor Alexi, Alexius I, Uh, in the late 11th and early 12th century. So she has left us something called the Alexiad, which is her biography essentially of her father, but her comments on philosophy and history and everything else uh, at the time of the first crusade, she knew all of the crusaders. She knew Godfrey of Bion, she knew Bohemond uh, of Toronto, she knew Tancred, Uh, all these legendary figures from the first crusade came through Constantinople and Anna Komnene was the woman who was um, recorded that, who actually took part in a, in a coup she wanted, uh, after her father died, a diff- different emperor and then was set off to a you know, nunnery for the rest of her life where she wrote these words. You know, women can be heroes in that sense. I don't think on the battlefield. Maybe they can. I don't know. I haven't had fighting with women on a battlefield before. Uh, but I just think it's, it's how we define it. And there's nothing wrong with women not fighting on a battlefield. I don't understand the push for it. I don't think it's particularly valuable other than as a soft to third wave feminists. I think it's dangerous for women and I think it demeans them. So um, with that uncontroversial statement, I'll give you back the floor.
0: Um, so in, in the, discussing one of your other best-selling books, um, you cover postmodernism, which is a, it's a subject that, uh, that we spend a lot of time on at the Atlas Society. Uh, of course, our senior scholar Stephen Hicks wrote explaining postmodernism, and we have our pocket guide to postmodernism. Uh, so, uh, your book, *The Devil's Pleasure Palace: uh, The Cult of Critical Theory and the Subversion of the West*, you warned against um, the uh, the kind of cultural and political dangers of dis- diminishing the concept of the heroic. Um, I tend to think of heroism as uh, overcoming great odds, as um, persevering against hardship, uh, accomplishing something um, even in the face of adversity. Uh, And we have a lot of adversity now. So I would love your thoughts on how we can encourage young people to see the value uh, in being heroes in their own lives. And that doesn't necessarily uh, mean, need to mean being a hero on, on the battlefield it could just be being a hero um, in, uh, in uh, holding your job finding a job starting a business um, and uh, and getting an education and sometimes you know standing up uh, for what you believe even though the consequences uh, may be very detrimental
1: Yes that's precisely right. Uh- uh, look, the, the history of the Western narrative, I say in Devil's Puncher Palace, is the heroic narrative. And we all know this story. Uh, we all live it when we're children. We, we fantasize about it. And the story goes like this. You're sitting, you're sitting there one day, and all of a sudden, some task is thrust before you that you don't want to do. This is the whole point. This gets back to Joseph Campbell, obviously. Uh, but you have, you have a choice to accept it or not. Now, if you accept it, your life is going to totally change, and you may be in danger, you may die. If you don't, you're just another cog in the wheel. So I said in my books, this is the story from Jesus Christ, okay, he's 30 years old, and all of a sudden, he figures out that he's God himself, the son of God, and he has a duty to change the world. And he could have said, I think I'll be a carpenter, forget it. Or, okay, I'll undertake my ministry. And three years later, he dies the most Horrific death the Romans could mete out to uh, as punishment. Uh, from Jesus' story to Tarzan, Tarzan you know suddenly wakes up and he's he's a baby in a tree in Africa and he has to not only learn to survive and be raised by wild animals but to embrace his destiny. Uh, it's the Little Mermaid. It's it's the Disney makes a whole every Disney movie is about heroism. It's about learning to accept your your destiny and embrace it uh, for you know whether you live or die. And I think that's the key to why Western civilization has been so powerful, which is that we're all individuals and we prize individuality. We are not the Asian Oriental, to use the old phrase, cultures of one king top down, everyone else is a serf or a slave, or, or some kind of a courtier trying to suck up to the boss. Uh, American society, unfortunately, uh, is now beginning to molt towards the Chinese style which is the epitome of that asian slash oriental school of, of the, the people at the relationship between the people and the sovereign uh, i would hate to see us lose this battle i think that's what the greeks fought for at thermopylae that's what the texians fought for at the alamo it's it's what the russians fought for at stalingrad against the, the wehrmacht the germans uh, It's what my father fought for survival uh, in korea uh, that is what the heroic narrative is all about and that's what i have decided to make my life's work to remind people of this history and not to uh, cast it aside for reasons of political correctness, whimsy, or fantasy.
0: So, no interview would be complete uh, without my asking you. You you mentioned that, um, of course, you've read Ayn Rand. You prefer uh, The Fountainhead. Why is that?
1: uh, Just from a literary point of view, I think it's better. I think it's less uh, hectoring. Again, I'm not talking about the philosophy and I'm just talking about the literary technique. Uh, She was a Hollywood screenwriter, which
0: uh,
1: all Randians know that, but most people don't. She had a very good ability to tell a story. I, I just find The Fountainhead a very compelling story. And it has a character in it that I think is one of her greatest, one of the greatest characters ever, which is Ellsworth Toohey who pretends to be your best friend but actually just tears you down and and, and spends the entire book undermining Rourke and, and everything he's trying to do. I think that's, that, that had her most perceptive insight into the human character. I find those character characters the, the most real uh, of her characters, Atlas Shrugged, which is the only other red book that I've read. Uh, they're more archetypal, uh, although I think Dagny is very attractive and obviously she's the main character in the book and you follow, it's her story, you follow. Uh, but I, I just have a real soft spot for the fountainhead. And I think his sort of sacrifice at the end, of, you know, blowing up his own building or however he d- destroys it, uh, is, is really quite moving.
0: I think you also, Michael, I am uh, re reading or re listening to We the Living, which was Ayn Rand's uh, the first novel and her most autobiographical novel. Uh, and I, I think you would I, I would appreciate um, your perspective maybe when we are both in LA we'll get together and we'll talk about it. It, it hadn't been and it, it isn't sometimes it is uh, my favorite novel um, in part because it's it's tragic you know in, in Ram's novels they are very heroic. They're not sort of uh, journalistic and just describing uh, things as they are. she's recreating things as they should be, um, but uh, in We the Living, it, it takes place uh, in the early days of the Soviet Union and the, and the characters are, are kind of
1: doomed in in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. Uh, let me say something about the Soviet Union since I spent so much, <laughs> so many happy hours there. Uh, that was a country that when I came back from it the first time in 1986, I, I remember I'd been in Berlin and all over East Germany in 85. Uh, that was to uh, observe the 40th anniversary of the bombing of Dresden by the English and American bombers. So it was a big propaganda thing for the East Germans. Then I was in Russia in 85 and Chernobyl blew up while we were there. So so I can turn off all the lights so you'll still be able to see me because we still glow in the dark <laughs> after the exposure <coughs> to that radiation, I guess. Uh, I came back from that experience in, in 85 in 86 in Russia. And I went to the managing editor at time who was kind enough to send me to Russia to do this cover story. And I said, this country is doomed. It's, every man can be bribed and every woman is a whore without exception. The, the amount of, of, what's the word? Not just vice, but kind of corruption pushed down to the lowest possible level in Russia. If you needed something, you could bribe a guy to do it. Uh, in Russia, women would knock on your door at, at 8 AM to offer sex, uh, for not for free, obviously. Uh, there was a sense that, as in Germany after World War II, the women were so desperate they were selling their bodies in order to survive in this horrible economic system that had been imposed upon them. Uh, at one time, I was hitchhiking back from somewhere. I probably shouldn't have been. And, uh, you hitchhike by holding up figures. Okay, one, two, three. Europe is down. One, two, three, front, right, four. And you, you, what are those? Those were packs of Marlboro cigarettes, which had supplanted the ruble as the medium of exchange on the street. So I held up three figures. I had a long way to go. Guy stopped. So we're driving along, and all of a sudden he pulls off to the side of the road, and I thought, uh-oh. So he gets out, and he goes into the trunk of his car, and he says, what do you want? And he's got weapons. it <laughs> has got Guys. rocket launchers he's got i don't know what uh caviar was always a big one they would they would haul caviar and sell it on the black market anything that could be sold on the black market this random civilian i think he was random uh had it in the back of his truck so i went on the radio at wabc in new york probably around 86 i'm sure it was the same year with glenn samuels who was a liberal talk show host in those days And I said, uh, I think that Germany will be reunited within five years. And everyone thought this was a remarkable prophecy that would never come true. And of course, I was wrong because it was three years that Germany was reunited, not five. Uh, That culture, the Russian culture, the the Russian people are so wonderful. And that culture was so evil. And it was so clear that they didn't want it. Uh, I used to say that every Russian guy wakes up in the morning and if he's not face down in the gutter, covered in his own vomit that he thinks what i didn't have fun last night i mean that's that's really how bad it was uh and they had one moment where they could have seized the opportunity to be free uh but yeltsin was not up to the job and putin was a kgb colonel so here we are they're right back where they started although now like china they allow capitalism so that the oligarchs and gangsters can skim even more off the top than they used to it's a, it's a bitter, horrible thing. And I, those who advocate socialism for this country are crazy. That's all I'll have to say about that.
0: Um, well, they, they certainly haven't paid much attention to, uh, to history. I think some are misguided and they um, think that this is uh, a way of helping others and, and sharing. Um, but, and yet I think there are still others that are immoral. I mean, I go beyond crazy that are um, immoral in the sense of covetous, of envious, of, uh, of not being able to make it in a free market and wanting to tear achievers down. And then, of course, um, greedy in terms of uh, the, the desire for the unearned. No.
1: Uh, there's,
0: there's going to be inequality uh, under socialism and communism. It's just... Uh, it's a different, um, the government controls who, who's at
1: the top. Right, well, two quick points about that. The greedy ones who want to tear people down are Ellsworth too. That's who that guy is. And then the idea that socialism is kind of a form of altruism at gunpoint really makes it repellent. Uh, not only is it, are you suspicious of the motive, but you're certainly not happy with the implementation of it. Uh, it's impossible to argue for socialism and communism. And yet people do. And yet every generation, this poison that starts with Marx and goes through Lenin uh, philosophically, uh, actually starts with Rousseau, who's really the worst bad guy of all time. uh, it, It just goes right back in our veins and we can never seem to not be attracted to the drug dealer who wants to hook you on this nonsense.
0: So we have about 10 more minutes, so I want to encourage those who are watching us on on Zoom and those watching us on YouTube to to ask your questions. For Michael, um, what you you were saying about uh, the Soviet Union and and the corruption and the the, the prostitution, uh, frankly, is really interesting. And it's another theme that is in We the Living, Um, spoiler alert, Uh, of course, the, the heroine uh, becomes so desperate. She's so in love with her ideal man uh, who uh, is developing tuberculosis that she um, essentially takes a friendship that she had with one of these doomed Soviet uh, commissars. And it, it kind of, not exactly at her instigation but it, it turns into um, prostitution. Uh, that this was, but for her, a way of of getting the money that she needed to, to pay for her, uh, for her lover's treatment, um, but of course, Ran, being a, a very good writer, it it became complicated, and our feelings about uh, the the commissar you Nina know, Andre Taganov were uh, complicated because he, in in many ways, had a lot of um, admirable qualities.
1: Yeah, well, uh, just recently, the New York Times did a piece on women who have lost their jobs due to COVID or, or are finding it hard to make ends meet, uh, you know, and often they're, they're generally not married, but they have children and they're in a tough spot. And they're now taking to a site, I think it's called Only Fans or something where they can post uh, videos and still photographs of themselves. And the Times of course celebrated this and wanted to say, while yes, there's a sexual element involved, i.e. mail release, uh, men paying for this service, et cetera. They're not really prostitutes. And I thought, well, <laughs> how fine are you going to cut this? Uh, are, are, is the New York Times, which has never found a silly social uh, idea recently that it didn't want to advocate, is it really saying this is not in some way at least virtual prostitution? And have we pushed women to that point again by this COVID craziness, which, uh, as you know, I think is absolutely ridiculous. And it's one of the things that cost, it's one of the reasons Trump's not in the White House today is that he fell for the Fauci-Burks panic over COVID. But all these things have social implications. And if we're just back to uh, the, the caveman era, well, we, we haven't made any progress at all, despite what the progressives are trying to do to us. I, I just found it so ironic that the times would celebrate this uh, even though it doesn't want to admit what it really possibly is.
0: Yeah, and, and I think also, um, you know, libertarians can have views uh, about not um, outlawing different activities, including um, pornography or uh, prostitution. But but I think we lose something when we're, we we take that and we uh, either uh, just are apathetic about it or aren't able to say you know no this is actually not at all what I would want for my daughter not at all what I would want for my son and I and I think it extends to to men as as well young young men that um, that are, are getting seeing that there's a sort of an easy uh, way out and that are that are preyed upon um, by by older men that are uh, looking for for sex, and um, they they fall into that lifestyle. And it's, I think it's very
1: tragic. Well, all these progressive ideas, if you go back through history, they always end up back where they started. So uh, the end state of any progressive idea is gunpoint as some kind of fascist thing, and then a reversion. So now feminism has gone from now. So I I went to college in the 60s. So we, we went from sexual liberation to women's liberation to women's empowerment to women have the same sexual appetites as men so women should be allowed to act on them the way men traditionally have to all of a sudden whoops uh maybe we ought to put girls back in nunneries again you know we had the me too thing uh and it winds up backwards started the race relations is, is now you see people actually advocating segregated dormitories and secret all the things that are antithetical to us old 60s hippies have now come right back and we're living in 1952. So congratulations, lefties, you, you've, you've come full circle.
0: Uh, as Ayn Rand would say, brother, you asked for it. <laughs> um, all right, well, we're, we're coming up uh, to the end. I've got a couple of other questions. Uh, I have a question from Lev Levitt, who says, i not sure if it's a question, but he, he, he grew up in Moscow. Mm-hmm. uh socialism beats humanity out of you leaving only a terrible wreck uh immoral shell so uh his very first comment about americans when it came to the us was you guys have morals uh around here so yeah. um so i thought that was that was very well, that's interesting.
1: quite a common sentiment from russians who uh, have come here i have a lot of friends one of our Yamashiro circle guys you may recall is a russian born uh they see the effect of the system on the human being. I'll get a very quick story. I met, I was having lunch with a bunch of Russians and one of them was a young woman who was a movie director and I said, oh, that must be great. No, no, not great. <laughs> it's, no, no matter what you asked, it was a miserable life. So I thought, well, here you are, you're a young woman, you've made a movie, you've got a career. That awful, terrible what has happened to these people that there is literally no joy in their lives whatsoever. You wanna see that people, bring it here and you'll see it.
0: Well, I think the other thing that uh, Lev's question inspires me is uh, that at some point we need to rediscover the patriotism and the love of of country. Uh, We can have that without it, devolving into uh, tribalism or a sort of mindless nationalism. Um, Ayn Rand was the most pro-American. Yes. Uh, she loved this country um, in, in a way that I, I think is, is too often lost on, on many who were born here and need to rediscover and and be proud of, uh, of, of America. And, yes, and, America.
1: and American exceptionalism, which they're now already trying to discourage again that this notion that America is a unique place. Well, it obviously, historically, geographically is a unique place. What's wrong with that? You're right, we should celebrate that.
0: Uh, Mark Shoup, um, who is a regular on these, Mm -hmm. it's really great to see you. He's also a, a donor to the Atlas Society. He says, he asks, in terms of human productivity being a primary virtue necessary for survival and uh, lives of meaning. Can you talk about similarities between uh, the Soviet system and today's economic lockdowns?
1: Well, uh, yeah, lockdown is the operative word. Remember, everything in Russia was locked down. What was interesting about Russia was that there was, as I mentioned earlier, a thriving black market for everything. So if I walked uh, under Red Square, people haven't been there, there's a big, shopping mall. Uh, you know, it's, it's cold in Russia too. So you want to get out of the, the cold as you're walking uh, across the, uh, the Red Square. Um, and people would offer to buy your clothes right off your back. And I kept thinking, yeah, I'll sell you my jeans, but then what am I going to wear? And it's 20 below zero outside. That's so not going to happen. Uh, the lockdowns here, I think, are un-American, unconstitutional, and just plain evil. And I, I don't want to be lectured uh, by unfortunately, especially women, who seem to be terrified of this bug with a 99.9 survival rate. Uh, the media has gone all in on this, as the media did in the Soviet Union, to push the party line. You will see no break uh, between The Times and The Washington Post on any of this. And they've, they've, they've reduced the population to slaves wearing muzzles. Uh, I went into the post office the other day, a guy said, hello, hey, Michael, how are you? I said, and it was a bunch of people standing in line. I said, everyone in here is dressed like a bank robber. I have no idea who you are. So I'm, I'm the one guy that's standing up against muzzles. I refuse to wear one. Um, it's just, it's inhuman. And as I say, it's unconstitutional. They've taken away our, our right to free association, our, our liberty of movement, our right to free expression in some cases. And no one's fighting back. And I think the reason that the Trump voters voted was to preserve freedom. And I think the Democrats, for whatever reasons, are much less attracted to freedom than they are to uh, control.
0: Well, um, I, I hear you on the on the gender differences. Um, I, um, I I also look at the data. I do wear a mask when I am around uh, my parents, not, not indoors around them. I'm staying here with my elderly parents here in San Francisco and I get tested frequently mm-hmm. um, when I come back from travel. But yes, I've been traveling in Arizona, in Florida, in Texas, and, um, and it is just devastating to see what's happening here in San Francisco. Yeah. No, no ideas of tra- trade-offs, you know, no um, kind of human sympathy for so many people whose uh, livelihoods have been destroyed um, for, for the number of uh, overdoses, which I believe here in San Francisco, overdose deaths have, have surpassed the number of COVID deaths in San Francisco proper, yeah. so
1: there no are trade-offs. It, that, and bad ones. Uh, there's there's really no good reason for this lockdown. And I, I hope Governor Newsom, uh, or Noisome, as I like to call him, uh, gets recalled. Uh, it, you know, can, The fundamental thing is it's inhuman. It's inhuman to be afraid of your fellow human being. I, I had to say to a woman the other day, I said, would you mind standing a little further away? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not radioactive. I'm not going to kill you. Well, that set her off, let me tell you. But the idea now that you should fear your fellow man is crazy. We've seen much worse pandemics. This is a word they love because it sounds like panic in it. Uh, much worse throughout history. And I was just reading uh, Daniel Defoe's journal of the plague here the other day. Here, uh, he wrote about it almost analytically. Okay, so this is what happened. And now this London got through this great plague. The Black Death was horrible. But you don't find the writers of the period complaining about it. You, they notice it, but those were the days when people dropped dead in the street, or they had carts come by to pick up the bodies. I don't see anybody dropping dead in the street now. I, I don't believe this COVID panic for one minute. I just don't. Maybe that's well, the libertarian streak in me. I don't. I,
0: know. I, I, I think uh, we, we like your libertarian streak. the other thing that is important to remember is there are things that each of us can do as individuals, including. Um, being healthy, working on our immune system, um, getting some sun, uh, losing weight. And um, yeah, so um, being being careful and, and, and cultivating a healthy immune system is, is so much a big part of it. Um, and cultivating a immunity of the mind mm-hmm. from the, uh, the diseases, the socially tr- transmitted diseases of envy of uh, greed and your your books uh help us do that michael where can we continue to um to learn more about your your books and uh of course go on amazon everyone and i highly recommend uh if you're an audible fan to get his audible version because he narrates it himself and you can see he, uh, he, he also speaks many languages. So I really liked the part where you used uh, various terms from other languages and um, pronounced them correctly. So <laughs> uh, so you, you are, I know you've been deplatformed from a couple of, of channels, but um, is there a newsletter or, or what's the best way
1: for Well, I, I am an early uh, uh, suspendee from Twitter. They threw me off before they threw the president of the United States off. Uh, so I'm no longer on Twitter, uh, but I am on Facebook. I think right now that's the best way. Yes, we're connected. Yeah. Yes, uh, just go on Facebook and look for The Last Stands cover. Michael Walsh is a very common name, as I am reminded constantly in Ireland when I walk through the graveyards and see five or six headstones with my name on them. Uh, But look for The Last Stands logo and uh, send me a friend request and join the fun. It's a very lively, spirited conversation about many politically incorrect topics going on there.
0: Well, thank you very much, Michael. I'm excited we've got you on Zoom. So that, that will definitely be one thing that, you, that you've hopefully positively been able to take out of this. It was really wonderful to uh, to reconnect with you. And also you're going to reconnect with Dale. So we are going to get the old, the old gang back.
1: Let's get the band together, together Jag, all with right?
0: Get the band back together. And you have a standing invitation to come out to Malibu. I will host a maskless ball for you.
1: That would be great. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks everyone.